Can I borrow one of these chairs over here, Don? Thanks. Genesis chapter 9. Is that okay, Rafi, you think? It's kind of flopping around a little bit. I don't know why I can't do this. It's because I'm not a sound guy. That's what it is. Let me see here. Genesis chapter 9. Myself comfortable. Close enough. So, oh, it's okay. I don't need. I don't need much. Just you know, another brain would be handy. You want to look at it? Okay, all right. I think I'm more. Hey, John, good to see you, brother. Welcome home. Amen. Good to have you back. Okay. So let's come before the Lord and ask for his blessing. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Lord, Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus this evening, Lord. And Father, we do want to thank you. Because, Father, we truly believe that you are here with us this evening as we are gathered in your name. And, Father, that your presence is here with us, Lord, to speak to each of our hearts. Father, to instruct us, to draw us close to you. And, Father, give us wisdom to walk in your way, Lord, to honor you with our lives. Father, we recognize that we are in the midst of a war. And this war, Father, is laying siege against us every single day, one way and another. But Lord, Father, you are our hope. Father, you are our hiding place. Father, you are, Father, our protection, our encouragement, our strength, our wisdom. Father, you are the truth. And Lord, we look to you this evening, Father, as we examine these few words in in the scripture. And Father, Lord, our prayer with confidence is that, Lord, you would be able to reveal yourself here, Lord, in the in the words that you've set before us. Open our understanding to receive from you and, Father, reveal the secrets of men's hearts this night. We love you, Father, we love you. We ask, Lord, for your grace to rest upon us and we, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Genesis chapter 9. Tonight we're going to talk about the new world order. I was thinking, you know, I think just before the flood, just before the flood took place, I'm almost certain somebody was sitting around after an evening meal reflecting on the circumstance of the world and was inspired by what a wonderful place God had created and in the moment of clarity said something like, You know, the world would be such a great place if it weren't for all the people. People have a way of complicating things, sometimes unbelievably so. It seems like this is one of our gifts to take things that are simple and straightforward and to make them incomprehensible. One of the things that really makes us different that God, God is in the habit of taking things that are 
completely incomprehensible and making them simple and understandable, straightforward, reasonable, so that you can actually take a hold of them and make them your own, operate them and, and initiate them into your life. It's pretty routine after spending time with the Lord to walk away with a better understanding of who you are and what's expected of you and how to go about putting the steps together to see it happen. That's what God does for us. In contrast to spending time talking to people where you can be a good deal less clear about where you are and what you're supposed to be doing than you were before you started talking to them. One of the ways that we understand is by the fact that God is a God of order. He created the concept. It's his idea. He engineered it. While people, on the other hand, are suffering the effects of chaos that has been introduced into our world by the forces of spiritual darkness, which are still trying to bring us down today. So as we look today at Genesis chapter 9, we look at really what is God's next step in his plan to introduce a lasting and effective boundaries and structure into the world of men. Boundaries and structure are not things that we always think about in the most positive terms, especially if you're an adolescent. You know, Boundaries, structure, rules, nah, save me somebody. But God, God's rules and his boundaries and his structure are very different. So tonight we're going to look at Genesis chapter 9 in three sections. Order for the new world. In Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, order for God's creatures. In Genesis 9, verses 11 through 19, and then order for the family of men. In Genesis chapter 9, verses 20 through 29. In the last half, last part, starting actually about verse 16, last part of, of chapter 8, God instructs Noah, his family, and the animals actually, to leave the ark. And if you read it, and I don't know if you have a crazy mind like me, but it almost seemed to me that they were afraid to leave the ark unless God directly told them to do so. You know, I, they, they'd been through a lot. They'd seen a lot of craziness. I think the things that Noah and his family saw are things that are not just a little bit beyond our ability to understand, but like way beyond anything we could ever imagine. You know, the things that they saw, their whole world absolutely destroyed in ways that are, again, beyond our understanding. And he further instructs them, be fruitful and, and multiply, back in chapter 8, multiply upon the earth. It's interesting that as soon as they leave the ark, first, if not the very first thing that Noah does, is to build an altar to the Lord. And notice, he does this without being told or instructed to do so. First thing he does is he sits down, he builds an altar to worship the Lord. First things first. You've all heard, you know, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And there is some real significance to doing first things first. First in priority, first in chronology, first in order. And recognizing that first things are first in significance. We put God first in our heart. Noah, as the servant of the Lord, is seeking to bring himself, his sons, and even all the animals of the world, which he's gotten pretty close to in the last year, into a right relationship with the Lord. 
We see God's response to the offering back in chapter 8, verse 21. The Lord smelled a soothing aroma. And then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. God makes this promise. He will not destroy it again, the world as he has done. Malachi 3.6 tells us, I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O son of Jacob. And even though God does not change, God is affected. He is moved by the, by the hearts of men that surrender themselves to him. This is not an easy thing to do. It is his overarching purpose to bring men into his truth, to free men to the order to which they were created. The lie of our popular counterculture is that order enslaves people. And, I mean, granted, there are people out there with with power that that's the desire of their heart, to put people in service to them. But real order, God's order, his purpose, his plan, on the contrary, what it does, proper order frees people to be themselves and to pursue the purpose for which they were created. In chapter 9, order for the new world. Chapter 9, verse 1 reads, So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast. I will require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth. Multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So this is the be fruitful and multiply the third, at least the third time that God's trying to make a point here. He wants them to fill the earth. God blessed Noah and his sons. I think it kind of goes without saying. 
if for no other reason that they are still drawing breath and the rest of the human world is just a memory. God has surely blessed these people. You ever think back about people that you used to know years ago? And you think, wow, I wonder whatever happened to so-and-so. I wonder what they're doing right now, you know? I wonder. Noah's sons and daughters-in-law probably didn't do that too much. Wow, I wonder whatever happened to... Oh, yeah, that's right. (laughs) They knew what happened to everybody. They knew. They didn't have to wonder, you know? And they knew that they had been blessed by the Lord. Even beyond their survival, God was in the process of blessing them, of encouraging the expansion of their family. I mean, very similar to what God tells Adam back in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. And the Lord blessed them, Adam and Eve, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. You see, guys, God is given. He is part of his nature is the rehabilitating of the situation of man. And he's doing it to this day. What happens with you when you get messed up? When you start barking up the wrong tree or heading off in the wrong direction and all of a sudden you realize hey, this ain't going to fly. You know, you just drop to your knees and say, Lord, be merciful to me. There he is in the habit of rehabilitating your situation and getting things turned around. And for a while, way too long, it seems like, oh, Lord, this is, you know, you know you're never going to. I know, Lord, I just have feel like a rat. I'm just so terrible, you know, until God is able to bring you along into a situation where he's for your benefit, able to show you favor again. And all of a sudden you go, hey, Lord does love me. He is here. He's I am forgiven. Thank you. And you then you pick up the ball and you start going. But until that point, till you reach that place where and you have to reach that place, you have to pick up the book. You have to get on your knees. You have to spend time with your brothers and sisters and you have to continue putting things in the right direction. You have to confess your sins to one another. You have to do what the scripture tells you until you arrive at that place in dying to self, sacrificing yourself, not feeling like the Lord is present with you until that time where he initiates that fellowship. And then you just want to cry because you're like, God, you're so good to me. It's so amazing. God is about the business of rehabilitating the situations of men. He provides boundaries, order for us to follow so that our initiative might provide progress as opposed to our natural mean, which is us spinning in circles all day long, getting nowhere. He separates us here in verse 2 from the animal world. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, and on all that move on the earth and All the fish of the sea, they are given into your hand. It's interesting that he reiterates this idea of fear twice. The fear of you and the dread of you for an emphasis, no doubt. Major changes, huge changes. Animals now fear man, which raises some interesting questions about the situation of man with the animals before the flood. It was very, very different than anything you and I have ever experienced with animals. Humans are dangerous. I don't know if you notice this or not. Humans are dangerous, even when they're well intended. Animals that have no natural fear of man are going to be animals that don't survive very long. In reality, 
He does, however, reemphasize that our dominion over the animals. In verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I've given you all things, even as the green herbs, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. You know, as we read through these directions from the Lord, it's important that we're mindful, that we understand that opposed to or in contrast to the earlier instructions to people before the flood from Genesis, these instructions are for our world, for the world that you and I live in. Everything written before this as regarding care, uh, stewardship, and responsibility towards the world was for a different world that no longer exists. And the reality is, is that we're not fully going to understand exactly how those ideas worked for the people who lived at that time, for Enoch and Lamech and all of the rest of the descendants that came down from Adam. Those people lived in a different world for Methuselah as well. These directions are for your world specifically because the world is, is completely and entirely different than it had been before. So with that in mind, these instructions God lays out are new beginnings. What we understand maybe as the beginning of civil and sometimes even religious authority. And so what we understand today as what we see as codified law that govern mankind begins at the time that God begins to speak to Noah and his sons here. Our advantage as believers, and it's huge, is that we see the principles upon which these rules are based in the scripture. When, when I read the law, when the law tells me, do this, don't do that, I recognize that this law that men have codified for, for my benefit is coming forth from the authority of God. And same thing Romans chapter 13 tells me. All authority is ordained by God. All authority is ordained by God. And that's important for me to understand. Why is it that animals fear humans? Somebody would tell you, well, they don't always. Really? They may not appear to. But I want to suggest to you that even submission to humans or even aggression can be attributed to a dread fear upon the animal, the dread fear that the Lord put upon every animal in this world. We have here also a change of diet. Prior to this command in verse 3, back in Genesis 1.29, God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. How many of you had some ganja-smoking guy quote that verse to you? Huh? Tell you all about it. And I said, well, go ahead. It's food. Eat it. You know? Doesn't they smoke it, inhale it into your lungs? Eat it. Uh, notice in verse 3 here, he says, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you as I have given all th- given you all things, even as the green herbs. Notice that he says he makes reference back to the other verse, even as the green herbs. He makes reference back to the fact he gave them herbs to eat before. They were all vegetarians previously. And now in the new world, they are to be meat eaters. Now they can still eat vegetables as well, but God intends for people to take in uh, protein that comes from animals as a part of their daily diet. Certainly not the kosher dietary laws of Moses, are they? What does he say? I have given you all things, even as, you know, everything, every moving thing that lives shall be your food. 
that's pretty broad, I think, you know. You know, he could be on one of those shows on TV, you know, crazy eaters, you know, what they eat. I don't know. It's, it's wild. Genesis chapter 7, verse 2 actually makes a difference, even though we don't have the dietary law here. Back in chapter 7, as Noah's preparing to load the ark, God says in verse 2, you shall take with you seven of each of every clean animal, a male and a female, two of each animals that are unclean, male and female. So obviously, Noah was aware of the differences between clean and unclean animals, even though the scripture here concerning the dietary restrictions doesn't give him that same situation. It's interesting to go through the beginnings of the book of Genesis and go through and see the implications for things that are really laid out in the Mosaic law. We don't have them laid out in the chapters of Genesis, but the, the ideas are there. For instance, early on in, in the book, uh, you have in chapter, the end of chapter three, you have Cain and Abel going to offer sacrifice to the Lord. They go to a particular place and it says at the appointed time. Well, now, wait a minute. What's that about? There was an appointed time. What time would that be? Obviously, there were specific. Is there some reason to think that the appointed times that Cain and Abel and Adam and Eve and all of the pre-flood children of God went to offer sacrifice were dramatically different from the appointed times that Moses took down and codified in the law, even though we don't have the dates and the reasons for them? No. I think God set it all in order from the beginning. Adam and Eve knew a lot more than we give them credit for. And the, the hints, like this hint, are there. There doesn't seem to be here, at least, the kind of concern for the dietary restrictions. And as we know, Jesus kind of reemphasizes that much later on. Whereas, you know, it doesn't matter what you take in. That's not going to make you. That's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. Either way, you would, would have to be careful about what you ate animal-wise. It would not take too much at this point to hunt an animal into extinction. And uh, you notice again, like the law of Moses, there's a reference to the blood of the animals that are to be eaten. You shall not eat the flesh with its life. That is its blood. Something special about the blood, isn't there? Something special about the blood. Can't you see Jewish people reading this stuff? I wonder what it is about the blood. The life's in the blood. Yeah, but what does that really mean? What is it about? Why, why is blood so important to us? What's the whole thing, you know? Placing a priority upon blood surely prompts us as believers to the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the first reference to the life of an animal or of a person being in the blood in the scripture. In Genesis chapter 9. Leviticus chapter 17, 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for your soul. Upon another altar, much later, blood will do the same thing. Hebrews 9, 19 says, For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet, whirl, and hyssop, sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise, he sprinkled with blood, both the tabernacle, all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things were purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified 
with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. Then he then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Once, not like the Roman Catholic mass or the Orthodox church mass that's offered every time that people gather that he suffers again and again by their, by their judgment and has appointed for men to die once after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear sins for many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation for those who eagerly wait for him. I want to be that guy. I want to be, I want to eagerly wait for him. He moves on in verse 5, Genesis 9, 5, from the blood of the animals to the blood of men. Surely for your life blood, I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast, I will require it. And from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, He made man. This is the reason. Because man is created in the image of God. This is why your life is precious. Whoever you are, wherever you are, whether you're a believer or not, you were created in the image of God. In the end of verse 5, there is an answer to Cain's question back in Genesis chapter 4. The Lord said to Cain, "Where's, where's Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? This is the beginning of capital punishment, when, when he actually he says here in chapter 5, of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. God's saying, you are your brother's keeper. That is the answer right there. This again is the beginning of capital punishment. He first addresses the animals and their responsibility. Surely for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast. I will require it. So we have the principle here. And as man has been created in the image of God to take the life of man, profane. It's the image of God. To take the life of a man is profane. It is an offense against God. Even by an animal. And will be answered by the death of the animal. From the hand of man and from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. For men who know better, the principle is even more crucial. Animals don't kill for jealousy, do they? They don't kill for avarice or entertainment value the way that human beings do. And don't kid yourself. There are people out there that take the lives of other people for their own entertainment. They do it. There are people that have moved that far down the food chain that they take the lives of people for entertainment. Man does that. And so in case we didn't understand it, he reemphasizes it again in verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood by man His blood shall be shed, for in the image of God, he made man. Now, if you think about it, there are, obviously, it's extenuating circumstances. Accidents, self-defense, war, 
etc. Numerous situations. And Moses addresses that stuff pretty at great length, actually, in the law, creating cities of refuge and opportunities for people who have accidentally taken the life of somebody or people who are trying to pervert justice to be dealt with as well. For a nation of men, for a community of men, okay, to resist this direction in the case of malicious and premeditated murder is for that nation, that community, to resist the word of God, to resist the commandment of God himself. Not a good thing. Not something we should ever take lightly. Nations that do, in our present culture, are thought reserved and compassionate because they've moved on. They've evolved. They've elevated themselves to the place that they no longer believe that capital punishment is humane. And they're suffering the consequences for it. They will. Capital punishment is no longer legal in Mexico. Do you think Mexico has evolved? Has moved on? Take a trip. Go down there and look around. See what you think. Check out what the cartel does with the lives of people that they don't like so much. They don't look too evolved to me. They haven't moved on. I don't consider themselves to be reserved and compassionate in what they live. Unfortunately, it's just the government that's become backward and foolish in the way that they deal with the offenses of people. You don't want to be more compassionate than God. Remind yourself. You don't want to be more compassionate than God. Sometimes it's the easy thing to do to not confront an issue, not deal with a situation. You don't want to be more compassionate than God is. Never. Remember the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 16 and verse 15. He said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men. God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Scary stuff. An abomination in the sight of God. It's a bad thing. Again, in verse 7, he places a distinction, really a blessing upon the sons of Noah. In verse 7, he says, But as for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. God's purpose is that we should multiply in the earth. God likes people. He likes a lot of people. And I think part of it has to do with his infinite nature. He can know every single one of them. See, I had two kids. Boy first, girl second. That's the right way to do it. I was done. <laughs> Boy, grow up, watch out for a girl. Except my girl's kind of crazy. You need more help. But anyway, you know, and I thought, if I have any more children in this, I'm going to have trouble really spending time with them and get to know them. Now, that may have been foolishness. I was a young man. I was probably 27, you know, at the time. And I probably could have had a whole bunch more kids and known them all very, very well. But God doesn't have that problem. He's not limited. God can have 640 trillion trillion kids and know every single one of them as well as he knew the first one. Doesn't have a problem. You see, believe it or not, God is able to spend as much time with you every day as he spent with Adam when Adam was the only person on the planet. He knows you as well as he knew Adam when Adam was the only person on the planet. And you are as important to him as was Adam when Adam was the only person on this planet. God tells him to multiply. Sometimes I think 
Maybe he's hoping to find a few good ones in there somewhere. Multiplying has never been anything that is too hard for us. In verses 8 through 10, God formalizes his purpose at work in the lives of these people of the world. It's interesting that God spoke to Noah's sons as well as Noah. And if you think about it, this is the only time in the ancient world where you could share information as quickly as we do today. Because the whole world could be appraised of a situation in a matter of seconds because they'd all be standing right there together. It wasn't a hard thing. Today we have to use amazing technology to do the same thing. Not quite as quickly. In verse 8, God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him saying, As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, with the birds and the cattle, every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Isn't it interesting that he includes the animals in this covenant? Say, I established my covenant with you and with these, all these animals. It's very interesting. You know, they would have been included anyway, as man has dominion over them, and it, he is included in all his dominion is included in his agreement. Everything that he manages is included in the agreement with God. But here, and I think there are a couple of reasons. One is, God is, for emphasis, really making the point that these animals have a real significance to him. And notice that this is right on the heels of him initiating the fact that they're going to eat these animals. These animals are for food, but I made my covenant with these animals. So they're like, okay, let me figure this out here. You know, I'm to eat them, but they're important to God and they're part of the covenant. Oh, yeah, all right. It's part according to God's command and his direction. Noah and his sons answer as custodians for the new world, for themselves and also for the future generations for the whole world. You ever think, why does God make agreements with man in the way that he does? Knowing us as he does. He knows that we're pretty flaky. He knows that we're going to drop the ball. He knows we're going to mess up. He actually even knows specifically when, where, how, and under what circumstances, doesn't he? He knows all the details. But yet he makes covenants with particular men at particular points in time. I, I got to tell you, I believe he wants us to understand this as an issue of great importance. He wants us to seize upon it, to hold on to it, to understand it, to study it, to take it seriously, to take it to heart. These things are important, and I think they may even be more important than I can possibly understand. God throughout the scripture punctuates a particular time, a particular person, a situation to bring attention to his greater purpose, always with the intention of pointing people in the direction of the cross of Jesus Christ, always. Verses 11 through 19, we have God's order for all God's creatures. He says in verse 11, I, thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For perpetual generations, I set my rainbow in the cloud. And it shall be for a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be 
when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and the flesh that is on the earth. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. God established his agreement with Noah and his sons. God provides security in this structure, even for the animals. Thus I established my covenant. Never again shall the flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again. Never again. Now, you may see this as being pretty repetitious. Thinking, well, you know, why is he going? He's not going to do it again. He's not going to, you know, why does he keep saying not again, not again, not again, not again? It, it is important. Whenever something's repeated, it is important. But I want, to, I want you to consider something. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of Shem. I want you to get on that big boat, have God close the door. And then I want you to spend the better part of a year on that thing under what kind of circumstances? What went down? What did you see before you got the door closed? What took place? And then now that things have calmed down and the waters are receding and you open the window and you're looking out, what are you looking at? How different is the world that you're looking at? How has that affected you inside? How much reassurance do you need that God, who has destroyed every living being on the planet, is not a cold-hearted God of judgment that is just going to destroy for the sake of you know, executive fiat because he can do it but indeed is seeking the benefit. And I really believe these people needed to hear that. They needed to hear that God had their backs. They needed to hear that he would never do this under any circumstances again. He says in 13, I set my rainbow in the cloud. It shall be before me a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Part, part of it is that you know, there will be no more destruction by a worldwide flood. Now there are substantial people, groups of people, smart people, Christians out there, uh, people like our buddy Hugh Ross at Reasons to Believe, who believes in the old earth, who believe that the flood of Noah was a local flood. This was not a cover-the-earth flood. It was a flood in a particular area, maybe over a particular area where all the people who were living in that area lived and they were all the people who were killed, but not the whole planet. That's ridiculous. How could even such a thing take place? Well, if that's the case, if it was a localized flood, then God's lying to us. Because, I don't know if you've noticed, but there have been many a localized flood since the time of Genesis. And thousands, hundreds of thousands of people have died as a result of localized flood and animals and other things that creep upon the earth. And so if this is not a reference to a worldwide flood, then God is misleading us with the things that he's saying. The appearance of the rainbow here gives rise to the theory, you may have heard this theory, that it had never rained before. Now, there is no mention of rain. Actually, early on in Genesis, it says a mist came up from the ground and watered the earth. No mention of rain. And because the rainbow appears for the first time, perhaps this is the very first time that it had rain. It is God's promise. 
Notice the process that he lays out for us in verses 14 through 16. It shall be when I bring the cloud over the earth, the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. Waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living thing, every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God likely to forget his covenant? He's not, is he? It's not not likely, not going to happen. So the rainbow is present to illustrate to us that God remembers. It is our way of seeing his remembrance. It's not about him actually remembering. It's not looking down at the rainbow and saying, oh yeah, that's right. No worldwide flood. I almost forgot. No. We see the rainbow, we remember. Do you know God is good? Let me tell you, God is good. God is better than we know, you guys. I have a friend, a young lady, a friend of my daughter's, who uh, got married a few, a few years ago. She got married out in a public park on a bluff at the ocean and uh, was a kind of cloudy day out there. And she was praying to have a rainbow at a wedding, at a reception, sometime out there. Wedding went off without a hitch, real dry, and no rain at all, you know. Everybody jumped in cars, drove to the reception. Reception was some ritzy house that some lady, just for no reason at all, decided to loan her for a reception. I mean, unbelievable place. And went out in this backyard. It's like a terrace backyard that went down forever, and it was amazing, you know. And cappuccino bar. And, I mean, it was, it was out of control. And we're standing around out there looking out over the Orange County countryside, you know, from this, this top of this hill there, you know. And it, off in the distance started to rain a little bit. And there were two rainbows. Went right across. Not, not one. Not one. Two rainbows right across there. Just like she prayed. You know, she wanted to have a rainbow at her, her wedding. You know. God is good. God is good. And by the way, he has substantial resources, if you haven't noticed. <laughs> There ain't a lot that he can't do. So if you got a problem, start talking to him regularly and from the heart. God does not forget his covenant. Now, we, on the other hand, we need help in that area. We are always in danger of conducting ourselves as if we had escaped his notice. Uh-oh, I think God forgot about me. Oh, God, God as if he was unconcerned for our situation, as if we're not actively, you know, pursuing it. If we're not actively pursuing it, we don't have a functional devotional life. We don't have a relationship that's operating to seek him. You know, Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen says, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And again, this is not a thing that happens without thought or without some substantial undertaking on our part. God has engineered our situation in such a way that for us to draw near to him is in some ways contrary first to the course of this world and even contrary to the course of our nature. You don't get close to God by accident. It is a surrender. It is a dying to self. Notice that phrase? Dying to self. The dying part in there is not accidental. Should do write that in caps. The dying to self 
in order to get close to God. And in Noah's case, the whole world just got a whole lot closer to God. Him and his three sons and their wives and his wife, everybody got real impressed with the need to be close to God. There is not a lot of pride or arrogance and self-exaltation going on with these people who just walked down off of that boat. James 4, 6 tells us, he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In verse 17, God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. I think it's interesting that Things that God uses as powerful symbols or icons to help give us, to help us to be more attached to an understanding of what it is that he's trying to give us the widescreen, the big picture view. He, he uses things like this rainbow um, are so badly abused in the popular culture. A couple, couple of examples. Blood. How does blood appear in the popular culture? It's used as profanity. I mean, the word, especially in England, is used as profanity. And the reason that it is profane is when they say bloody this or bloody that, okay, that they originally are speaking about not their blood, but the blood of Jesus. That's what it's a ref. That's why it's a profane expression. It's taking the things of God that are holy beyond our understanding and demeaning them in a way. There is, is there any re- respect or civility or order concerning the way that people refer to blood? Go out and see a slasher movie. There's no respect. There's no concern. The rainbow. How do we see it expressed? Well, let's see. The, the rainbow is the international symbol of sexual deviance, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. In the world's perspective, of all physical activity, sexual activity is different. Sexual activity is different than other physical activity. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. So this symbol of the rainbow used by homosexual groups all over the world communicate and and that, of course, if you go out into the public arena today and you hold up a rainbow and you say, what does this communicate to you? That's what you're going to hear right now in the popular culture. Something God created to identify his connection and his protection of the creatures of this earth has been corrupted to the degree that it is now the symbol of a terrible expression of human rebellion against God's order. Sometimes I think, gentlemen, that if we had any real idea, the spiritual condition of our world, we would all have agoraphobia. We'd all, we wouldn't be able to get out the door in the morning. We'd be about curled up in the corner in fetal position because the world we live in is so whacked. It is so beyond anything that we could understand. And, and you know, the Lord shields us He protects us from the spiritual depravity of our world so that we can actually go out and function, so that we can interact, so that we can be his witnesses because 
That is, that's really his purpose. The miracle from the Lord and really the insult to our enemy is that knowing what we do know, we are functional. We get up every day. We are confident in God's hand at work in our lives. And we're confident of his promise. From his promise here in 17, we segue to identify the community that is covered by the promise. Verse 18 says, Sons of Noah who went out of the ark, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was to be populated. Now, it's interesting that he puts in the father of Canaan there to the Jews who read this as taken down by Moses, one of the first five books of the scripture, as the Jews read this, they would have identified Canaan, all of the, seven, all the tribes to be displaced in the land of Canaan as Joshua came in over the Jericho. Those were the people of those nations. These are the sons of Noah that went into the ark. Now, there could have been kids born on the ark. They were there long enough, plenty long enough. But we have no record of that, and we don't speculate. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. All the nations of the world descended from these three men. And we, we assume that we have them listed in birth order. Shem, the oldest. Ham, the second. Japheth, the youngest. Shem is the father of the Semites. Okay? That's where the word Semites comes from, from Shem. Um, we get Semitic, anti-Semitic, even though the Arabs are Semitic, technically, because they're descended from Abraham. Anti-Semitic refers to the Jewish people. When you're anti-Jewish, you're considered anti-Semitic. Okay. Um, the Semites, uh, the Arabic Semites, descending from uh, Abraham with Hagar the Egyptian um, through Ishmael. Ham, you know, middle children are always so much trouble, aren't they? You know? Not always. That's not fair, really. It's not true. Ham is the father of Canaan. Kind of, again, a foreshadowing of the future drama, all the inhabitants of Canaan before the time of Joshua, as well as the nations of Africa. Japheth, which makes up the European nations and a good portion of Asia. Keep in mind that the world that we live in and have lived in since this day is subject to inter intermarriage on a massive scale. So any attempt to really try to define these groups strictly on the basis of their paternity is by definition going to be somewhat flawed. And so you've got to be cautious about that. Except to say that the whole earth has been populated from these three. Yep, know that for sure. No doubt about it. These three men are the fathers of every generation of people that live upon the planet today. So the order of the family of men, Genesis chapter 9, verses 20 through 29. Noah began to be a farmer. He planted a vineyard and he drank the wine and was drunk. And he became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went in backward, covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away. They did not see their father's nakedness. So, 
Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. And then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. May Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and may he dwell in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his servant. Noah lived after the flood 350 years. And all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. So Noah had the right idea. About 600 years old, getting ready to retire. Start a garden. Retiring from shipbuilding and animal studies. Going to kick back for a while, build himself a vineyard. Good man. Noah began to be a farmer and he planted a vineyard. I'm sure that wasn't the only thing that he planted, the vineyard, but we have it in record because it created some drama. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, told his two brothers outside. Shem and Jacob took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, went backward, covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away. They didn't see their father's nakedness. Do you ever have trouble with people? No? All right, Daryl. Good for you, brother. Mark, mark that word there, guys. Keep an eye on him. It's a matter of time. People, 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 people. Man, what is it? You know? God help us. But I'll tell you something. You have trouble with people? Brings you to your knees. Puts you on your knees. Because you know what? Them people out there that you're having trouble with, they ain't going to listen to you. But they'll listen to God. They will listen to God. You get on your knees and you earnestly seek the Lord for favor and opportunity. Two things will happen. One, God will change your perspective. <laughs> You'll go from, I just saw to get a If I did, man, if I get a, and pretty soon you'd be singing a different tune. You'll be saying, oh, Lord, I'm sorry. You know, I don't know what's wrong with me. Yeah, I understand why they feel this. You, you will. God will change your understanding. That's an evidence of maturity, maturity as a believer in Christ. And the other thing is, is when you do have an opportunity to deal with the issue, that God will open a door and that there will be opportunity for reconciliation. And even if not, even if you don't get, you know, that golden ticket, you don't get reconciliation, you don't get things straightened out between people, you get to be a witness of the person of Christ because you go to him and you pray. And when you pray, it's about me moving to God's perspective. That's the thing. I have to remember that. You look at Noah here. Wouldn't it be nice if we never made mistakes? Unfortunately, that's not the case. We are the best of us all full of holes. And we always manage one way or another to engage ourselves in a wide variety of failures and shortcomings. And those of you that are single, go get married so you can find out about them. <laughs> Very important. And I'm serious, in a good way. And I mean that in a good way. It's not like wives sit around all... Well, it's not like all wives <laughs> sit around all day just thinking about their husband's failure so they can tell him about him in person. But God has provided that helper fit for help to help us see our frailty. And that's the truth. And it, of course, it doesn't help that you already knew before she started to tell you and that ticks you off all the way, you know. But, but the thing is, is I need to know. I need to know. You know, would you rather hear it from your wife or somebody who doesn't like you so much? You know, 
Unless, of course, well, never mind. (laughs) Noah here is no different than we are. There's a good deal of speculation among Bible commentators and other sources regarding Noah's drunkenness. I've even heard that it was possible with a vapor barrier around the world before the time of the flood, that something that restrained the ultraviolet rays from touching the earth, that grape juice may not have been fermentable. You could have fermented it so that you could have, you know, drank grape juice until you burst and never gotten drunk before the flood. I don't know if there's much substance or truth to that. I really don't. I don't know. Certainly they were probably just, I can't imagine all the trouble they had before the flood that grieved God so badly without alcoholic beverages. You know, I'm telling you. God is good. We don't really know. However, you, you want to look at this. Noah does certainly bear some responsibility in his situation. However whacked out you get, generally you know when you're laying around naked. You know? I mean, it's not rocket science. And if you're in the process of getting whacked, you know, you have some early warning signs. Woo-wee! What's going on here? <laughs> you know, give me another one. You know, I mean, I, May is first time. Whatever. But I'm telling you, Noah bears some responsibility in this situation. So there is an element of real moral failure on Noah's part in the situation. He's not completely without responsibility. Now, his son Ham, on the other hand, has a much greater and a more glaring failure in that he seizes upon Noah's situation, his misfortune of his father. Keep in mind, you guys, as all godly cultures are, this is a patriarchal society. Fathers are everything. And he decides to make a point of his own personal entertainment in a public way. In fact, sharing the situation about his father with everybody in the world. He does, right there. You know? No mercy. He didn't just chuckle to himself and walk up, told everybody in the world about what was going on with his dad. Actually, on the one hand here, revealing some character issues with Ham. And on the other hand, opening an opportunity for some prophetic utterance about things to come in the future concerning future generations and his offspring. Ham's attitude was tweaked. And the scripture instructs us, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Great advice, guys. Great advice. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work And then he'll have rejoicing in himself alone, not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. You'll notice in that passage there, it tells us that God's called us to bear one another's burdens and that we're to carry our own load. And the idea here is that if me, as an individual, if I see my responsibility to help you, and I also realize I have to bear my own load, that makes me more responsible. If every person that walks with Christ sees themselves responsible in that way, Let me tell you, nobody's going to be struggling up the hill. Everybody's going to have help and everybody's going to see their responsibility clearly. People are going to approach one another in humility, considering themselves, you know. 
I pity the man that doesn't know his own frailty. I pity the man that does not see his shortcomings for what they really are. This is a gift of God to see your failures and to see them honestly. You guys, I've spent some time counseling people that are never wrong. It is horrific. It is horrific. I, I kid you not. It is terrifying to sit down with a person who is never wrong. And my heart just breaks because, you know, their life is going to be fraught with terror. You know, wild. At this point, Noah regains consciousness and takes opportunity, maybe not right away, but at some point, to pronounce prophetically concerning his sons, starting here in verse 24. Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Now, some people believe there may have been more harm in Ham's actions than just laughing about or pointing out his father's condition and situation. You, will, you may read this in a commentary. It, if that's the case, there's certainly no reference to it in the scripture whatsoever. Basically, what they're saying is that you know, Noah's overreacting, so there more must have happened. No reason to think that. What scripture doesn't say, we don't know. What we do know is that Ham and his family are cursed. And we see it play out through history and throughout the scripture. Verse 25, then he said, cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. And may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and may he dwell in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his servant. A servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. The mention of Canaan specifically gives us indication he's born. By this time he's alive. So Ham has had at least his firstborn son. When he says to his brethren, again, that's everybody, we know that the family of Ham are by far the greatest victims of slavery in the historical world. Okay? Lots of people have been in slavery throughout. Under the Roman Empire, it races all over Europe, Germania, all over the place, people in slavery. But as far as the, the practice of the world, especially since the 17th century forward, most of the people in slavery have been from Africa, from that locale. And most of the slave traders of the world have also come from Africa as well and promoted in, in Islamic culture in a powerful way. And actually, the, after the finish of the Roman Empire and the great empires of the ancient world, slavery fell on hard times until the advent of Islam and people used, Islamic people in powerful situations used slavery and became professional slave traders to make huge, and of course, you know, the capitalists of the world weren't far behind to make a buck, unfortunately. But we see this prophecy played out powerfully in this situation. Now, when you say, you know, how is it that we have this drunk guy or recently drunk guy, prophesying over these people and apparently doing so by the Lord, by the Holy Spirit of God. Since when does God use drunk people to go around prophesying? Don't be shocked, folks, but God will use almost anybody. B. 
being gifted by the Lord to perform an inspired function is never, repeat, never God's endorsement of a person's character by example. Let me give you another example from the New Testament. John, Gospel of John chapter 11, verse 47. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do for this man works many signs? Speaking of Jesus. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And then one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now, John's commentary here by the Holy Spirit in verse 51. Now, this he, he did not say of his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Caiaphas is not exactly the most sparkling character in, in the Bible, and, but certainly God's spirit is willing to use a person and not necessarily as an endorsement of their character. And yet the prophecy is true. As to the other boys, focus really seems to be Ham in the situation and his son Canaan. The Lord... Lord gets blessed because of Shem. Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. Japheth gets enlarged and Shem gets to be his landlord. He will dwell in the tents of Shem, making Shem most blessed. But notice only by implication. Noah doesn't really say anything about blessed be the Lord God of Shem. You know, Japheth's going to live in his tents. Canaan's going to be his servant, but he doesn't really say anything specifically about Shem. Why does God do this, folks? He's just, is he just seeking to displace innocent people from their rightful position? And that is the opinion of some people. God's, you know, taking innocent people who haven't been born yet and relegating them to the also-rans. In Isaiah chapter 48, in verse 5, actually all over in Isaiah, it could be that God is in the business of foretelling the future in order to identify his claim of deity for the new world. Isaiah 48, 5 says, Even from the beginning I have declared it to you. Before it came to pass, I proclaimed it to you, lest you should say, My idol has done them, and my carved image, my molded image has commanded them. So you know, because nobody else tells you the future before it happens. Even Jesus, the exact representation of the Father, Matthew 24, 25, he says, See, I have told you beforehand, just like the Father. I'll go with door number two. God does this to substantiate his claim that he is who he says he is. If you're a Calvinist, you would believe that there is no cause in all the world except the sovereign will of God. And if you're a Calvinist, you invalidate all reference to free will and choice. And all prophecy like this becomes God's command, his edict, instead of simply the verification of his future knowledge and Ham's failure as an indication of the absence of character seized upon by God to express these future situations. God knows what's going to happen. He's going to tell us about it. These men that were descended from Ham and Canaan, they made their choices. 
This was not God's plan. It was not his intention. Verse 28, Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. In spite of any failings that he may have had, Noah obeyed the Lord. He was a great example to believers and to his sons. In Hebrews eleven seven, it says, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he conduct, condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. You hear a lot of things in popular culture about people saving the world, you know, movie stars, superheroes, secret agents, save the world, you know. Guess what? Noah saved the world. God saved the world, but he used Noah to do it. Really saved the world. Obedience to God is always the most advantageous action possible in any situation, both for the personal benefit and for the mutual advantage of others as well. Proverbs 22.3 says, A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. A little earlier I said the Lord said nothing about Shem except by implication. That's true. The only thing is you can say an awful lot by implication. When he says in verse 26, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem and Canaan may be his servant. How significant is that? You see, what he's doing out of those three boys He's identifying this one boy, the Lord God of Shem. He is connecting Shem to God. And who does Shem become? Children of Israel. That's the connection. Not the other two. Order for the new world. God's protection for his people expressed in the creation of boundaries that protect his people and restrain their bent nature. Order for God's creatures. God initiates a covenant to reinforce his role as protector. And very handily, shortly thereafter, exterminated the whole world and provided a focal point for future generations that they can understand and be encouraged. And finally, order for the family of man. We see the practical details of his presence played out in the lives of his people, in their activities, their failures, and his direction for them to reveal his providence and his judgment and his blessing. And so he wants to do with us. God help us to see his order, his direction, and his instruction as the blessing and the freedom that it is every day. Father, we thank you, Lord, for being here with us. Lord, we pray for your blessing upon our lives. Lord, you know who we are. We pray, Lord, for your grace. Cover our failures and our shortcomings, Lord. Give us wisdom to repent wisely. We pray for our families, Lord, for encouragement and strength. Lord, provide for us. We need your help. We need your spirit, Lord, to speak to us clearly and plainly. Father, give us wisdom to receive rebuke and, Father, exhortation as a wise man would. And, Lord, to learn. We love you. Father, we lift the church to you here in Pasadena. We pray your hand of blessing upon it. And Father, we rejoice to be your children. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.